All right, well, good morning. Good to be with you all. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. If you are new or visiting, like Andy said, just want to say welcome. It is good to have you with us this morning. If there's anything that we can do to serve you or help you get connected to the community here, we would really love to be able to do that. So come find me or somebody else that looks like they know what's going on around here. We'd love to connect with you. Uh, Looking forward to opening God's Word with you guys this morning. Uh, This fall, we have been studying Exodus chapter 20, uh, which is the Ten Commandments. And and what we've done is we've framed our study of the Ten Commandments uh, inside, uh, helping us see that the Ten Commandments are inside of the context of one of the most central storylines of the Bible. And that central storyline is that God is making a people for himself. He's making a people for himself who are going to, who live for the praise of his glory. And that throughout that storyline, throughout the Bible, the the primary way in which God's people um, uh, live for his glory and glorify God is by obeying his commands. What we've seen so far over and over is that the reason why that is is because God's commands, they don't just tell us what God wants. God's commands, they tell us what he's like. They're, they're not just like a legalistic list of his favorite rules that he came up with on whatever day he gave them. They're a revelation of his character, of his nature. They show us what he is like. And so at the heart of the Ten Commandments isn't just a list of rules to follow, but rather it's, it's fundamentally a worship guide. It's a, it's a guide that shows us what it looks like to glorify God, what it looks, looks like to, to bear his image, to worship him, to reflect him to the world. And oftentimes, I think when people think about the Ten Commandments or God commands in general, uh, we kind of think that it's just some outdated, burdensome checklist of do's and don'ts that uh, at the best, you just kind of got to suck it up and muscle through and just kind of make it your way through. Or at worst, it's, it's some kind of oppressive chains that just keep you from experiencing life and freedom, life to the full. But what I hope that you have seen so far in our study and what I want to show you again this morning is that in the Ten Commandments, God isn't trying to keep something good from us. Instead, he's trying to give us something great. You see, the Psalm 19 tells us that keeping God's commands, they refresh the soul. They give joy to the heart. That in keeping them, there is great reward. You see, the Ten Commandments aren't some burdensome chains. Instead, they are an invitation to a life of incredible freedom and blessing and joy. You see, they show us, they show a free people what it looks like to live in the freedom that God has bought for them. That's at the heart of what's going on at the Ten Commandments. And the problem is, is that all too often we think that we know better than God. We think that we know better than God. And nowhere in our culture is this tension more clear than in the way that we view the topic of the Seventh Commandment. And that's the topic of sexuality. See, our culture thinks that what the Bible has to say about sex is not only antiquated and backwards, but actually dangerous and even oppressive. But that's nothing new. You see, when Christianity was brand new in the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire thought that Christianity's view of sexuality was crazy. They were astonished by it. They were shocked by it. They, they thought it was not only unhealthy, they thought it was impossible You see, the reality is that both the ancient Romans and our culture today, they fundamentally, we fundamentally operate out of the belief that we should always follow the desires of our heart and that we are freest when we are unhindered from following those desires, that we are, that we should always follow the desires of our heart and that we are freest when there aren't any rules that keep us from following those desires. But what the Bible and the honest test of reality both show us is that real freedom isn't found by living in light of our unhindered desires. 
See, real freedom is found by living in light of God's good design that he has made for us. In the late 1960s, there was a guy by the name of George Leonard, and he was the, uh, the, for the primary editor, the senior editor at a popular magazine uh, of the day, and, and he used his position there to, to promote the sexual revolution of the 60s. But decades later, uh, in a book that he wrote called The End of Sex, Leonard expresses a surprisingly different position. He writes this, he says, The sexual revolution has not done what its proponents claimed it was doing. It has not enhanced sex. Instead, it has only cheapened love. He says, I was a proponent of the sexual liberation, but now I see that sex has rules. And unless you play by those rules, sex can create a depth of loneliness like nothing else can. You see, what Leonard found was that the reality is that just like the goldfish who tries to liberate itself from the confines of its tank finds only death instead of freedom, so too do we when we try to liberate ourselves from the confines of God's good and gracious design for our lives and for our sexuality. We don't find life. We don't find freedom. We don't find blessing. We find pain. We find death. We find loneliness. You see, so many of us resist what God's word has to say about the idea of sex and sexuality because we think that we're going to miss out on something. You see, but the reality is, is that God's word for us tells us what it does about sex because, precisely because it doesn't want us to miss out on something. And so that's what I want to show you this morning. See, as we study the seventh command, is that in calling his people to a radical sexual purity, God is actually protecting for us the radiant gift of sexual intimacy, and he's doing that for our good, but more than anything, he's doing it for his glory. There's probably no more relevant and no more controversial command than this one, and so we are definitely going to need God's help as we study. So let's pray, and we'll dive into God's word this morning. God, we uh, come before you this morning, and uh, we just humbly say we really need you. God, our world and our hearts are at odds with this command. God, very clearly and blatantly, God, not just someone else, but our own hearts. And so, God, we need you to be the one that is graciously shaping our hearts and our attitudes this morning. God, I pray that you would be speaking through me. God, that you'd give me a posture of humility and graciousness, but one of, one of urgent importance, God. God, your word is life to us. And so I pray that as we study this morning that you might show it to us as life, that we might live as your people who offer life and show it, God, for our good, but for your great glory. We really need you, King Jesus. We pray. Amen. Amen. Well, Exodus 20, chapter, uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, simply reads this way, you shall not commit adultery. Now, before we begin, what I want to do is I want to take a moment just to acknowledge a few things. One, we are going to be addressing some really hard issues this morning. Uh, it's not light. It's not easy. I just want to shoot straight with you. It's tough. But what the Bible teaches about sex and marriage, it flies in the face of what our culture and our world want us to believe. 
I just want to acknowledge that on the front end. Secondly, I realize that for many, if not all of us, this issue hits very close to home. When I talk about those words about sexuality or about uh, adultery, about marriage, those things, they immediately bring up uh, things that you have been or are wrestling with. Uh, They bring up friends and family members come to mind, real people with real issues and real relationships. It comes to mind. It brings those things up. And I want you to know the same is true for me. I don't approach this topic lightly, nor do I do it from a distance. You see, but it is incredibly important. Lastly, I want to acknowledge this, that Christians have sadly, tragically, even wrongly, often isolated and ostracized people who have struggled with various uh, sorts of sexual temptation or sin, viewing some kinds of sexual temptation or sin as the unforgivable, the, the thing that just pushes people, that must push people to the outside. That's the, it's the one thing you can't come back from. It's the, it's the one thing that you can't fix. It's the one thing that, that, that pushes you to the margins. And I just want you to hear me say on the front end, that is a lie. That's not how this church sees it. That's not how I, as your pastor, see it. And that's not how Jesus sees it. And so that's not how we're going to approach it this morning. Instead, as, as your pastor, I, I, I pray that you would sense in me this morning a, a posture of humility, one of grace, one of compassion, but also one of urgent importance. You see, the stakes surrounding the topic that we are addressing to this morning are deep and wide. They are far-reaching, and they are deep-reaching. They are incredibly important. And so if you have questions about things that we talked about this morning, I'd encourage you, come find me. Shoot me an email. Talk to me. I'd love to meet up with you if you have questions and process those things with you. So as we begin, each week we want to ask the question about the questions about instruction, revelation, confrontation, and transformation. So we begin here with instruction. So what, what is God's word instructing us? What, what instruction is it giving us about sex in the sixth command, the, the command to not commit adultery? And like I said in the introduction, God's, God's commands are equally as much about protecting something he wants to give us as they are about prohibiting something he, he doesn't want. And I think when it comes to the topic of sexuality, we really need to start with what is being protected here. You see, because unless we see the, the radiant gift that God is protecting for us, uh, we are never going to... We're, the, the prohibitions that God puts on our sexuality are going to seem crazy. They're going to seem incomprehensible. They're going to seem like just foolish insanity to us. You see, if you and I in this world do not see God's, do not see, uh, if, we're, if we don't see it as good news, the thing that God is keeping protecting for us, then we're never going to be willing to put ourselves under the authority of his good word. And so let's begin there. You see, a a biblical view of sex, it must always begin by seeing sex as a good gift from God. It is not gross, it's not disgusting, it is a good gift. People often think the the Bible has too low a view of sex, that the Bible needs to just loosen up and realize how fantastic it is, how amazing it is. But that's actually the opposite. You see, the, the Bible actually has an extremely high view of sex. You see, God created sex, he created the desire for it, he created the pleasure in it, he created the unity of it. You see, the Bible celebrates the act of sexual intimacy, and it does, doesn't see it as gross or evil or even as simply about procreation 
creation, it presents sexual intimacy as a wonderful gift, a blessing to be treasured and enjoyed. Genesis 2.24 says, a man leaves his father and mother, is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. That's not just a metaphysical oneness that is being spoken about there. It is a physical oneness that is being spoken about there. Song of Solomon is an entire book of the Bible that is basically a duet between two lovers that it begins this way uh, with the bride speaking. She says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is more delightful than wine. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. And it goes on from there. The PG version of Proverbs 5, verses 18 through 19, reads this way. May your fountain be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife of your, your, your youth. May her body satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul specifically tells husbands and wives to not withhold sexual intimacy from one another. See, God, is, God inspired the writing of all of those things and so much more. You see, one commentator writes it this way. He says, the biblical view of sex is that it is not merely procreational, but also relational and even recreational. Sex is for love, for pleasure, for joy, and it is in order to protect this joy that God has given us the seventh commandment, that we should not commit adultery. And that brings us to what this command prohibits. You see, we think of adultery primarily as about someone who is cheating on their spouse or their significant other. But the seventh command forbids uh, much more than just cheating on your spouse. That, in the Bible, that, that term adultery, it refers to any and all sexual activity outside the context of marriage between one man and one woman. You see, according to God, any and all sexual activity with anyone who is not your spouse whether that happens before marriage, whether that happens during marriage, whether that happens after marriage, all of that is sin. You see, and so if it is sexually erotic, it is reserved for a man and a woman inside the context of marriage. When you say, some people say, well, what, what if it's not sexual intercourse exactly? What if, what, if it's, what, if it's, what if we don't go all of the way? And the question is, is what you are doing sexual? Yes. Well, that counts, right? All sexual activity. Well, what if we're engaged? Well, is engaged different from being married? Yes. So that would fall under the category of something that is prohibited. What about same-sex marriage? And again, between sexual activity is excluded except between one man and one woman inside the context of marriage. And sometimes people often say, well, Jesus, Jesus never spoke about homosexuality. And the truth is that he did. Eleven times throughout the Gospels, he affirms the Old Testament's uh, structure of understanding of sex and sexuality, which is that sex is limited exclusively between a one man and one woman in the context of a covenant marriage. You see, but if that wasn't enough for us, you see, Jesus takes this command to a whole other level in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 27 and, and 28. He says, you have heard it said that you should not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, we think adultery is all about what you do with your hands. You see, but Jesus is saying is that it, it has everything to do, not just with your hands, but what's going on in your heart as well. See, Jesus says it's, it is sinful even to look at someone who is not your spouse and to entertain sexual thoughts about them. That would include things like pornography and masturbation. It would include things as well like emotional affairs. It would looking for lusting after the attention of someone who is not your spouse. It would look like cultivating emotional support structures for, with someone who is not your spouse, with someone, especially when those things are 
private and personal with a member of the opposite sex. You see, Jesus is confronting all sexual sin right down to our innermost thoughts. He's saying that even if we don't commit the physical act of adultery, we are still guilty of adultery by means of, of our thoughts and our fantasies, the things that go on in our hearts, the, the where we click on the internet and the affections of our, of our hearts and the things that we long for. You see, adultery isn't simply about what we do with our hands but what happens in our hearts and our minds as well. You see, all of us have played with adultery, if not in our bodies, then with our minds. You see, the view of sexual purity that the Bible lays out is radically different. It is radically different than the world that it was spoken into, and it is radically different than the one in which ours, the one in which we live as well. You see, but the question isn't just how it's different. The question that we really need to wrestle with is why it's different. Why? Why, why no adultery? Why, why no sexual activity outside of the context of marriage between one man and one woman? You see, our world wants us to believe that marriage and sexuality, that they are unto us, that, they are, uh, that they're about us, that they're about our happiness and our fulfillment and our gratification and, and our blessing and our joy. You see, because, and because they are about us, they should be done and pursued in whatever way we see fit, in whatever way brings about the kind of satisfaction or fulfillment or pleasure that we think it should bring about. You see, but from the very beginning, the Bible paints a very different picture above the purpose for sexuality and for marriage. David Platt, one pastor, he writes it this way. He says, we are swimming in a cultural ocean that cries out with every wave, gratify yourself. But what if we haven't ultimately been created for self-gratification what if we've actually been created for God glorification? And even better, what if God glorification is actually the way to experience the greatest satisfaction? You see, we tend to think about marriage and about sex as an end. It's the goal. It's the, it's the thing we look to. But the Bible teaches us that God created those things as a means to an end. You see, they're a way of pointing to a greater reality. They are a way of revealing something about him and something about the gospel to the world. And that brings us to what this command reveals about God. You see, sexual intimacy inside the context of a marriage between a one man and one woman, it reveals something about God's nature to us. Genesis chapter 1, 27 teaches that, that humanity, that both men and women are created equally in God's image. And what that means is that unlike any other part of creation, humanity has the capacity to, to both know God and to reflect him to the world. To, to bear his image means to reflect his character, and to, to reveal what he is like. You see, and just as much as Genesis 1 emphasizes the equality of men and women as God's image-bearing representatives, it also highlights the distinction of men and women as God's image-bearing representatives. You see, there is a difference, a meaningful difference there, and it's not an added bonus. It is not a, a happy accident. It is not a liability. It is a necessity. Genesis 2, 18, God says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And that phrase, when it says that, when God says that is not good for the, that's the first time over and over and over for 30 plus verses, God was saying, he made it, it was good. He made it, it was good. He made it, it was good. And we come to this part in Genesis 2.18 and he says, he made it, it, something was not good. There should be this like the shock to our system. 
You see, what over and over, you see what God is saying is that there's something really significant here about the incompletion of this passage until the woman is created. You see, creation is not complete until both men and women are present. You see, why is that? Because God, because alone, Adam could not fulfill his identity and purpose as God's image-bearing representative. He needed a helper. In, that, in the Bible, that word helper, it's not like assistant. That word helper, it, it doesn't mean like my, when my daughter Emma wants to help me cook dinner. She's, she's not really helping, right? That's not what it's talking about. You see that word in the Bible when it talks about helper, it refers to a necessary and indispensable ally. A necessary and indispensable ally. You see, God, who God creates as man's necessary ally is not just one who is like him. Because humanity needed difference. It needed both equality and diversity in order to bear God's image. You see, in order to live out our identity and our purpose as God's image bears, we need both sameness and difference. Both unity and diversity. You see, because the God whose image we bear, whose likeness we reflect is his, and display is characterized that way. You see, when God creates humanity, he refers to himself in the plural. He says, let us make man in our own image. You see, because God is Trinity. See, just as there is one Trinity in multiple distinct parts, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, so there is one humanity with multiple distinct parts, the male and female. You see, there is sameness and there is difference Genesis 2.24 goes on. It says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. You see, God's design for the purpose of sexual intimacy is that it is a way in which humanity uniquely bears his image. That we reflect something about who he is about the creator who has made us. You see, and in the physical union of a husband and wife, of a man and woman who are equal and yet distinct, there is a picture of the incredible unity and equality and diversity of the Trinity. You see, sex isn't ultimately about our pleasure. It's ultimately about revealing something about God's nature, about what he is like. But it's not just about sexual intimacy. It's not just about revealing God's nature. It's meant as well to reveal his character as well. You see, in the Old Testament, God is constantly referring to himself as the bridegroom, that he is the husband and Israel is his bride. In the New Testament, Christ is referred to as the bridegroom and the church is referred to as his bride. You see, what characterizes God as a bridegroom, what characterizes his as a husband is his unrelenting covenant faithfulness to his bride. His unrelenting covenant faithfulness to his bride. You see, what the Bible says is that God has given himself to his people. He has given himself to his people wholly, entirely, fully. Jeremiah 30, 22 says it this way. God says, you will be my people and I will be your God. God is giving himself to his people. You see, in marriage, a husband and wife tell each other, I am giving myself to you. I am committing myself to you. I, I am, you are the only one for me. I will be faithful to you. You see, and sex is a way that spouses express that kind of unhindered, unheld back commitment. See, in sex, you are your most vulnerable. You are your most exposed. You see, in, in sex, what you're doing is you're showing someone else, I completely and exclusively give myself to you. All of me, I give it to you. You see, and in the unity that comes from a sexual intimacy inside the confines and the security of that commitment is unequaled. You see, it's a reflection of the intimacy and the security that God has with his people. 
You see, that's why sex is not just reserved for a man and a woman, but it's reserved inside the context of marriage. You see, marriage and sex are good gifts, but they're gifts that are given for a purpose. You see, sex and marriage, they aren't actually about you. They are for you. They are a gracious gift, but they're not about you. Ultimately, they are about God. And their purpose is to reveal something about him to the world. And that's why adultery is such a heinous thing in God's eyes. Adultery is not just this incredibly, horrifically painful thing for persons and for our existence. It is a heinous thing in God's eyes as well. J.D. Greer describes how when we pursue sexual intimacy with someone who is not our spouse, we're acting like a bulimic with food. He says, just like you taste food, just like a bulimic tastes food but doesn't want to keep the nutrients or calories in their body, so they taste it and swallow it, then spit it back up. He says, you like the taste of bulimics. They, when we do that, we're like bulimics. We taste the oneness with someone, and we like the taste of oneness with someone, but we don't want to actually become one with someone. We see it as God's image-bearing representatives, when we, when we commit adultery, when we, when we pursue sexual intimacy outside of the context of God's, rule, of God's ways, what we're doing is we are actually lying about God. We are lying about him. Tim Keller writes it this way. When we use sex to, uh, to, uh, to say something to, other than expressing our total commitment to someone else, it is a lie. You see, sex is a nonverbal piece of communication that God has designed, and it's meant to carry a message. It's a communication mode, and if you use it in any other context, you destroy it. You see, when we pursue sexual intimacy outside of the confines of marriage between a man and woman, what we're doing is we're saying that the God whose image we bear, whose character we are called to reflect, that he is uncommitted, that he is unfaithful, that he is unwilling to sacrifice, that he is unwilling, that he just uses people for his own gain, and that he does not truly love them. You see, that is the opposite of God, who God has proven himself to be. It is the opposite of God who's proven himself to be. You see, God has wholly given himself to his people, and no matter how unfaithful we are, he remains steadfastly faithful to us. No matter how unfaithful we have been, he remains steadfastly faithful to us. The whole point of the book of Hosea is about God displaying his covenant faithfulness to his people in spite of their repeated and unrelenting unfaithfulness to him. You see, it is a powerful, powerfully beautiful, and yet sobering picture because what it shows us is the reality of our own spiritual adultery towards God and of the magnitude of his covenant faithfulness towards us in spite of ourselves. See, and that leads us to how this command confronts us. See, adultery, it, it harms relationships. It harms reputations. It is incredibly painful. Most significantly, it harms God's relationship and his reputation. You see, with our adulterous hands and our adulterous hearts, what we do is we mar the image of God. We lie about him with our words and with our actions. Instead of seeing sex as a good gift to be used ultimately as worship unto him, we worship sex itself. We believe it's the one thing that we must have that we cannot live without. It's the one desire we must always fulfill. And it becomes this overwhelming, controlling influence on our lives. We, we turn it into a God. You see, an adultery of our hands and of our hearts is not just folly. It's rebellion. You see, we reject God's good design for it. And, and we, we instead, uh, what we're doing is when we make sex 
about us and about our pleasure and about our joy and about our fulfillment and we reject God's good design. And, and when in actuality what we're doing is we're rejecting God himself. We're enthroning ourselves as the king of what is good and right, what brings life and what doesn't. And see, and the question is, is how do we need to respond? How do we respond to God's word? I want you to hear this. I did not say they or them. I said we. How do we respond to God's word? You see, and the right response to God's word for all of us is always to repent and believe the gospel. You see, repentance, it, it, it begins with confession. You see, ever since Adam and Eve create, uh, sinned in the Garden of Eden, every single person has inherited a sinful heart with a bent towards sexual sin. These tendencies produce different temptations in each of our lives. For some, they experience sexual desire for the same sex. For others, they are prone to sexual, fulfilling sexual desires uh, with those of, this, of, the, of an opposite sex in ways that are outside of God's designs. But as David Platt writes, he says it this way, we are all personally, biologically, culturally, and spiritually predisposed towards sexual sin, some of us are simply predisposed in ways that are more culturally acceptable. Unfortunately, he goes on to say, in the church we have an obvious tendency to isolate certain segments of sinners who struggle with a particular sort of sexual temptation. We, we look at adulterers as as un, an unfaithful lot who deserve to be left alone. We perceive gay or lesbian neighbors as enemies in a cultural conspiracy to take over our country. We view porn addicts as perverts. We view prostitutes as projects. We, we look at transsexuals as people who will pollute us if we get too close to them. He says we, are, we see other people as different from us, in some cases even dangerous to us, but the truth is, is that they are all just like us. We are all just like them. Every single one of us is seeking a way that seems right to us, is seeking a way that fulfills and brings satisfaction. You see, maybe you haven't committed adultery with your hands, but you have lusted after others in your heart. Maybe you waited to have sex until you were married, but you did it for selfish reasons. You did it not for God's glory. You did it for your own pleasure. You did it so that you think it would make your sex life better. You see, the truth is, is that the only one who is sexually pure, the only one who was righteous in all the ways was Jesus. And I need you to hear this. You are not him. All of us, all of us are sexual sinners. None of us are spotless. None of us meet the standard, myself included. I'll never forget the day uh, I got a phone call from uh, my wife's brother, Hannah. He and his uh, boyfriend at the time, they wanted to know what Hannah and I thought about what the Bible had to say about, about marriage and about same-sex marriage and about homosexuality. And I, and I was caught off guard, honestly. It was a call that just came out of the blue one afternoon. And uh, I remember fumbling around with my words, just like being caught off guard in the midst of a really tough difficult topic. And I remember, I remember communicating basically that what, what I've said this morning, that the Bible, that it, that it outlines that the context for sexuality is, is confined to the relationship of a one man and one woman inside the context of marriage. See, and it wasn't because of this conversation, but within the next year, my brother-in-law, Zach, had cut off all ties with all our family. And, and despite our best efforts, we haven't been able to speak with him in the past five years. 
And I have thought about that conversation. I've thought about I've thought about that conversation often. You see, what I don't regret is what I said. What I regret is what I did not say. You see, I wish so badly that See, what I wish I would have done was confess my own sin to him, to acknowledge my own sexual sin, to say that you and I, we are different. All of us, we both look to things other than Jesus to satisfy and to give life, that we are both tempted to make sex about us, to look for it to be this thing that, that is for us, that is unto us. We both failed to live out God's good design for sexuality, not just you, I have as well. You see, I have wept over those words. I've longed to say those things to my brother. You see, the reality is, is that in the end, every one of us is a sexual sinner. Every one of us. You see, the re- you see like the rest of God's law, the seventh command, it leaves us utterly condemned. Every single one of us is in desperate need for a savior. You see, and the good news of the gospel is that God so loves sexual sinners like you and like me that he sent his son to pay the full price for our sexual sin. You see, for all of us experiencing the transforming power of the gospel, it begins with repentance. Sam Albury writes this. He says, repentance is about turning around and facing a new direction. He says, all of us are facing the wrong way. All of us need to reorient our lives around Jesus and the gospel. There will be things that we all will need to turn around on that feel fundamental to who we are. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus says to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves to take up their cross and to follow me. See, the call to follow Christ is an invitation not to receive anything in this world that you want, but is instead a summons to leave behind all that we long for. You see, repentance is a costly call to fundamentally say no to who we are in order to say yes to the new identity that Jesus has given us. It is about rejecting our desires in in favor of his desires for us. And so the question is simply this, how do we turn from sexual sin It can feel like this all-consuming, all-encompassing thing that it feels it's easy to feel stuck in and immovable out of. And this is where the second part comes in. You see, we don't just need to repent. We need to believe the truths of the gospel. J.D. Greer, again, he writes this. He says, what we crave in sex, he says, what we crave in sex is what we find in Jesus. You see, there is only one kiss, one set of arms that can fulfill your heart-level needs. He is the ultimate beauty. He is the intimacy our soul craves. And when you find him, then you will have the power to say no to the other. When you find him, you'll have power to say no to the other. 
The famous Puritan preacher Thomas Chalmers, you've heard me quote him before, he talks about this as the expulsive power of a new affection. He writes, neither you nor anyone else can dispossess the heart of an old affection. The heart is not so constituted. The only way to dispossess it of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. And if that new affection be the love of God, it shall draw the heart of the sinner towards him. You see, what he's saying is that the only way you control the the strength and the strongness of the sexual temptation in your life is to replace it, to overshadow those desires with a stronger affection. You see, being captivated with the love and the glory of Jesus is the one thing that will enable you to control the sexual desires that you have. You see, the only motivation that will actually empower you to actually pursue a sexual purity before marriage and a sexual fidelity within marriage is responding to Jesus' purity and his faithfulness towards you. You see, we believe that Jesus' death paid for our sin and cleansed us from all unrighteousness, that, that we are now clothed in his righteousness, that we are changed, that we are made new, that, that God has declared us pure pure through the love of Jesus. You see, Jesus purchased our lives so that we might be able to display the the purity of his holy and selfless, unadulterated love for us. And that doesn't just change who we are, it changes how we live. You see, because of Jesus, he is his faithful love for us. We want to tell the story of his love displayed through our own sexual purity and our sexual fidelity. You see, when you see Jesus' purity for you, when you see his faithfulness to you in spite of your impurity and your unfaithfulness to him, when, when you see all that he gave up, when, when you see what he sacrificed for you, when you see that he did that for you in love, out of a love for you, a covenant faithfulness to you, in the midst of your unfaithfulness to him, what it will produce in you is a longing for a sexual purity unto him. When you see what he has done for you, it wells up in your heart a longing to respond that way towards him. You see, we want the world to know that though we have betrayed the love of our lives, that we have been forgiven and made new, that he has not forsaken us because of what we have done. We want people to see that in our sexual purity and in our fidelity. And we also want them to hear about God's forgiveness. We want them to hear that though we have sinned and though we, that, that, though we have sinned, that we all are the one, that he is the one who makes us pure. You see, where we fail, Jesus did not. He bore the image of God perfectly. He did it for us on our behalf. And at the cross, we find a sacrifice for our sin and a cleansing for our guilt and the power to start actually living for Christ. And so as we close, motivated by the gospel, I want to just give you a few practical ways to help us pursue obedience to this command. See, not just to abstain from adultery, but to celebrate and to guard sexual intimacy in your marriage for the glory of God. You see, none of these things I'm about, to, none of these things I'm about to outline, none of them will work on their own. None of them will solve the problem on their own. Instead, the gospel is the thing that changes our hearts and it helps us to live out these things. So, a few helpful things. Number one, ask God to help you see your sexuality ultimately as about His glory. 
Ask you to help, ask him to help you connect the dots so that you might see that your sexuality isn't ultimately about you, but that it's connected with his name and his reputation and his glory. Ask him to help you see that. It's that it's a good gift, but it's not ultimately about, about you. Ask him to help you see that as a way that you get to proclaim him. Secondly, don't pursue sexual intimacy with anyone before you are married, whether that's your hands or your heart. Don't practice unfaithfulness. You see, even if you aren't dating someone, you're not, you might not be cheating on someone, but you are being unfaithful to God, the God who has called you to faithfulness in him. You see, and unfaithfulness is not practice for faithfulness. Unfaithfulness outside of marriage is not practice for faithfulness inside of it. Couples often ask when they're dating, how far can we go? And I want to encourage you to ask a different question to ask your questions about how can every part of this relationship glorify God? How can every part of this reflect him and speak unto him? Third, don't begin the conversation with temptation. Don't begin the conversation with temptation, whether that is on the web or with a person at work. The longer you entertain the conversation with sexual temptation, the likelier you are to give in so don't start the conversation. Often what we do is we try to just nibble at the conversation. We try to just, well, I know I don't want to end up here, but, but I'll just go a little ways because I want that, but I, I don't want to end here. I just want to encourage you, don't start the conversation. Don't rationalize it. Don't reason with it. Run from it. The Bible says to flee sexual immorality, to run from it. Don't start the conversation Fourth, guard your heart by guarding your eyes. One pastor I read this week said it this way. He says, don't let your eyes recruit your hands. Don't let your eyes recruit your hands. You see, I want to encourage you to be careful about what you are inputting into your eyes and into your heart. Much of the entertainment that we see and consume all around us, it promotes and normalizes all kinds of adultery. And I want to encourage you, be careful about what you watch and what you consume. Be careful about what becomes normal to you. Be careful about what you see that just comes across as not a big deal. Let God's word be the thing that shapes that. Don't lie to yourself and to believe that it doesn't affect you. Fifth, married couples. If you are married this morning, I want to encourage you, fight for fidelity in your marriage with freedom and frequency. Once you get married, before marriage, God out expressly holds off sex until we are married. But once you get married, however, one of the best defenses against infidelity is, is sexual freedom inside of your marriage. I know that there is probably children in the room and young ears, and so I'm not going to go into great detail on this, but just, just to say this, if you are together frequently with your spouse and it's not always the same, that will help to fight for fidelity in your marriage. 1 Corinthians 7.5 says it this way, Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent, and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Help each other in your marriage. Pursue sexual fidelity and faithfulness to one another and to God by enjoying the good gift of sex that he has given you inside the context of marriage. It is not gross. It's not disgusting. It is a good and blessed gift. Enjoy it in the confines that God has given. Lastly, or number six, married couples, I want to encourage you to be honest with each other about sex. Be honest with each other about it. I know that those conversations can be hard. They can be awkward. They can be like 
They can be just difficult and messy, but I want to encourage you, be honest with one another about that. Speak honestly, right? Do it with gentleness, do it with patience, do it with grace, do it with humility. But have those conversations around that topic. They can be hard, they can be messy, but I know even in my own marriage, those things have resulted in much good and in lots of blessing, even though they're hard. Lastly, and most importantly, more important than any of these other things, if we want to fight for faithfulness and fidelity before marriage and in marriage, we must nurture our deepest desires, not for sexuality, but for God himself. C.S. Lewis famously wrote this. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. He says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. And like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased, he says. Morning, I want to encourage you. Do not settle for sex when the Savior has offered himself to you. Don't settle for the lesser things. Pursue fulfillment in him. He is the one well that won't run dry. He is the one well when you go to it, it actually satisfies. He is the one well when you go to it, it brings life unendingly. And so he has given himself to you, so give yourself to him. Give him your time. Give him your affections. Give him your eyes. Give him your mind. Give him your whole heart. Offer it to him. Give it to him. Pursue giving it to him. You see, these things will help you guard the radiant gift of sexual intimacy in marriage, but, they, but if they are not motivated by the gospel, if they are not coming out of a response to Jesus' purity and faithfulness towards you, then none of them will work. It's just dead religion at that point. What you need is, a, what you need is the expulsive power of a new affection. So cultivate a new affection for the king by pursuing the things he calls you to. See, none of those things will work outside of the gospel. And that's why we choose to remember and celebrate communion each week. You see, we're reminding ourselves that Jesus' body and his blood were broken and shed for us. That he that he received the penalty for our unfaithfulness, for our spiritual and physical adultery, that he took on the penalty for us, that we might receive the reward of his faithfulness to us, which is covenant, right relationship with God. See, communion does not make you right with God. It does not save you. It does not change your status or your standing with him in any way. Instead, it is an opportunity for us to remember the person and the work of Jesus, to, to remind ourselves of the perfect, glorious son who brought many of us home to glory with him so that, so that we might be filled with love and gratitude for him that overflows in a life of obedience to him. As we see his purity for us, we long to be pure for him. And as his redeemed people to live for the praise of his glory. And so at River City, the way we take communion, there's bread and there's a table in the left and on the right in the back of the room. And during our time of worship, as we sing and remember the gospel together in song, if you have put your trust in Jesus, if by faith you are relying on the purity which he imparts on you,
then go back and take communion. You see, what makes you able to take communion, what, what qualifies you for that, is his purity on your behalf when you by faith receive it. You see, but if not this morning, if you're looking to something else to satisfy, if he's not the one whose purity is yours, then I would encourage you, hold off on taking communion this morning. I want you to know you are welcome here. This church is for you. This people is for you. You are welcome here. But I would encourage you, come to Jesus before you come to the communion table. What you need is him. What you need is the cleansing, purifying life and status that he offers. As we take communion, as we sing, talk with God. Confess the sin of your hands and your heart. Ask him to forgive you, and he will. Jesus is in the business of forgiving sexual sinners like you and like me. In John 8, there's a woman who's caught in the act of adultery and she's brought before Jesus, condemned by all those around her. And Jesus speaks to her and his words are not full of condemnation, but they are full of forgiveness. But they are also full of a call to leave a life of sin. See, the gospel beckons us each to a new identity that is found in Jesus. But it is a new identity with all new activity as well. You see, God calls us not just to a spiritual faithfulness that is towards him, but to a physical faithfulness to our spouses that is unto him. So receive his forgiveness. Let it transform your heart and your hands for his glory. Let his purity and his faithfulness to you, let that be the thing that empowers your faithfulness and your purity towards him and towards your spouse. Do it for your good, for your great joy, but more than anything, do it for his great glory so that in your sexuality, in your, in your marriage, you might proclaim the God who is worthy of everything. To that end, let us pray. King Jesus, we come before you, each and every one of us, God, as a sexual sinner, God, who, is, who falls under the, the weight and the penalty of the seventh command. God, we do not live up to it. God, we stand utterly condemned under it. Ah, oh, but because of you, Jesus, and by faith in you, we are made pure and clean. You see us not as unfaithful, impure spouses. You see us, King Jesus, as you have been, as faithful and pure because you were. And so, Jesus, help us to see your faithfulness and your purity towards us. Help us to be captivated by your sacrificial love for us. Help us as husbands and wives, as singles, as all, wherever we are at. King Jesus, help us to honor you in our sexuality. God, for those who are here this morning and who, are, who, who, who pointedly feel the weight and the pain of adultery, whether their own actions or the actions committed against them, God, I pray that you would be gracious to meet them in that need this morning. God, for those who have adultery committed against them, God, I pray that you'd be gracious to remind them that you know what that feels like. And that you come with gracious and gentle arms to comfort and support and surround. 
God, for those who have committed adultery, God, who have pursued sexual intimacy outside of the confines in which you have laid out, God, would you graciously confront our hearts and call us to a covenant faithfulness to you and to our spouses. God, for our good, more than anything, for your glory in all the world, we pray. Amen.